0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together for this last meeting. We ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to kind of bring it all together now, and help us to really understand the contributions that Judaism has made to Christianity, and why and where the two uh, separated. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. <clears throat> Just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always sad to, uh, come to the end, but uh, that's the way that I guess it should be. Uh, today I would like to end the story of the Jewish people, particularly after the Babylonian captivity, as I've said before, the people who were taken off from southern Israel, the land of Judah, to Babylon, had no reason, they had no understanding. Uh, why they were being taken off. You know, they looked to the covenant that God made with Abraham and Moses and David and down through the prophets that assured them of God's protection. And yet, they didn't realize that It wasn't God who abandoned them. It was they who abandoned God. Why not living up to their end of the covenant? The main reason for the covenant that was made with God, the main reason of God's plan of salvation then and now, is always to spread the good news of what God has done for us throughout the ages not just at the time of Christ however that is the apex of the effort but down through the ages God has given us so many instructions and aids in various ways to understand that his love is eternal but There is a flip side, there is another side to the coin, and that is obedience. Obedience to a certain way of living, so that his love will then radiate out to those around. And we should be very aware of that, and hopefully today I can bring it all together So that you can see that. It's so important that you really understand that God is not just up there. God is not just in the temple as the Jewish people thought. God is not just in our tabernacle on the altar. He is in and within all of us, within us, when we consume The bread and wine that has been consecrated into his body and blood. He is now within us. And I've often heard people say, well, how do I know that God hears my prayers? Well, if you think about it, if he is within us, obviously, he knows what's going on in our minds in our hearts. And if our, our mind and heart are truly in the right place, then God is already aware of our intentions, our purpose, our meaning, and what our prayers and our needs are. But the Jewish people didn't understand that when they were carted off uh, to Babylon and made captives. I don't want to use the word slaves because we in America have a different... Understanding of what slavery is and what it was there. Theirs were more like indentured servants. They were treated reasonably well. They were allowed to live their own life and have certain, uh, freedoms within, you know, a certain range. And it wasn't until they started the synagogue system, that is, the uh, meetings, the, uh, just to, understand and study the book of Deuteronomy which contained the majority of the sayings and the laws that Moses had given them and the various laws that had grew up since the time of Moses to the time of the writing of the book of Deuteronomy which was in the 7th or 8th century BC and they finally woke up They woke up to the idea that it was their own sin, their own neglect of obedience that caused them to be in Babylon. Now, we might take that as an interpretation in a way of our lack of obedience is going to be punished either by purgatory or sadly by eternal damnation. There is another side of the coin, then and now, and unfortunately, we have swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. It has gone to the side of love, love, love. Before Vatican II, everything was hell and damnation, and if you don't do it this way, you're going to go right to, you know, and. <clears throat> church fathers with reasoning uh, as we said that isn't true not everybody is going to go to hell just because they ate a hot dog on Friday you know and, and died on Saturday or something so foolish as that but there is the idea that we do have to account for our failures as well as being given credit for our uh, many good blessings and good things. So, they finally woke up, but then they went to the opposite extreme. They were going to obey every one of those laws of uh, Moses, and they were going to do this, and they were going to do that. So that when they were finally released from Babylon, through the good graces of Cyrus the Great, the Persian, who overcame uh, the Babylonian <clears throat> empire, and through the good graces of Cyrus, who many people think were was inspired by God, uh, because he did something that was totally unheard of in those days, releasing uh, indentured servants, or releasing the captives that was there, because he knew that they were unhappy, and he wasn't going to get the best out of them, and it was a burden. So, God inspired him to release, and not only release the captives, but help them reconstruct their lives, help them to get back with protection as far as Israel, and even he went so far as to help them rebuild the temple, the Solomon's Temple, Not entirely, not to the glory that it once was, but at least enough to be of service. So that they could reconstruct their lives, uh, and start the worship service again that they had known before. Now, also during this particular time, in the teachings of these little house uh, groups which became the basis for the synagogue system. The priestly class came to power. Remember there was no king, there was no structure, uh, there were no leaders in Babylon of the Jewish people, and so it was the priests who kind of came to power. Prior to this time there was no one who was considered the high priest. But if you recall, in the many Gospels, uh, the high priest was the most important person, even greater than King Herod. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herod and the various Herod that followed, theres his father, son, grandson, and great-grandsons. Yeah. Uh, there were seven of them all together uh, in succession. They were put in there by the Romans to give sort of semblance of order, but they were never really accepted by the people. In fact, uh, Herod the Great wasn't uh, fully Jewish anyway, he was an Indomian, which means that one of his parents was from Indomia, one of the uh, neighboring nations which, of course, was against uh, the Jewish rules at that time. And he was never really accepted, and neither, neither was any of his children or grandchildren uh, accepted. So the high priest became the ruling person in Israel at the time of Christ and for a long period before. But I'm getting a little ahead of, of the story the people did come back, as I said, through the good graces of Cyrus the Persian or the great, but they were never under uh, sovereign rule. They were always under uh, the domination of the Persians who were very lenient with them. But then, as you know, Alexander the Great in the third or really the latter part of the fourth century uh, BC conquered the Persians. And so they were under the domination of the Greeks for a long period of time. The Greek, after Alexander the Great died, uh, the Greek Empire was sort of broken up into ten different uh, smaller kingdoms. Five of them, just coincidentally, five of them in North Africa were headed by the Tuolumne uh, kings and five in the mid eastern countries which included israel were headed by the seleucid kings uh, they were not really kings in their own right they were still under the domination of of the greeks but the greeks were losing uh power and structure and organization anyways antiochus iv uh was the ruling power from Greece over Israel in the second century or third century uh, BC and he tried to instill the Hellenistic uh, faith and culture and religion on the Jewish people and he insisted that they abandon all of their Jewish laws and customs. Well you can see the clash that developed right there. If they came back out of Israel with this strong determination to obey all the rules and the regulations, and then they meet up with a culture that was totally opposed to those same same rules and regulations, uh, what happens? Of course, immediately a war breaks out, and the Maccabees family was in charge—not just totally, but in charge, you might say, of developing uh, a counterattack against Antiochus the Fourth and the Jewish, uh, rather, the uh, the <coughs> Greek uh, army, if you can call it that, that was there. And this set up uh, quite a war uh, of cultures and ideologies and. A number of other things. It became the basis for the books of the Maccabees, which you can read uh, at your leisure. They're interesting, a little confusing, but nevertheless interesting. More importantly, it became the basis for the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is an unusual book. It is uh, classified as apocalyptic literature, the, it's divided into three different parts. The, uh, Actually, four different parts, but that's okay. Um, it reads uh, like a fairy tale. It was a criticism of what was going on at the time. It was a criticism of Antiochus IV, the Greek king, the was ruling over them. It was a criticism of the things that he was trying to uh, get the Jewish people to do. Uh, And if you read it uh, directly, you'll be totally confused, I'm sure, unless you understand the history behind it. Because, first of all, it's set back in the Babylonian time period. And it was done that way to escape the censorship of the Greek people. So if you read about it, it's all written as if everything was happening back in the 6th century B.C. in Babylon. Well, that is not the case. Uh, It was satire and a criticism uh, and sort of uh, language that would bring hope to the Jewish people of that time period. Much of it was uh, put in the language of dreams. Um, you've all heard about the writing on the wall. That's where it comes from. Uh, and there's so many other things that are in there that um, require a lot of uh, investigation and explanation, and I won't get into all of that today. I, I like the book of Daniel because it has some very beautiful prayers in it, which are used in the uh, Liturgy of the Hours. If any of you uh, study the Liturgy of the Hours or read them on a, a regular basis, and you may have heard of the priest's office, the daily office, that they were required up to Vatican II, to read on a daily basis that has been relaxed quite a bit nowadays. It's still recommended, but it has been relaxed. Uh, the number of prayers that come out of uh, the book of Daniel are used frequently in the Liturgy of the Hours, and quite often you'll hear some portions of it as the first reading uh, in the daily and Sunday Masses. Anyways, uh, That's one of the good things that came out of this time period, but not that important uh, to our cause for understanding uh, Jewish history today. Some of the other things that uh, were, and I want to go into the good things, you know enough and you've read enough about the bad things that happened uh, that the Jewish people did uh, and I'm talking about the leaders again, always the leaders. As you know, Christ uh, chastised and condemned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, not quite as much the Sadducees as the Pharisees, because they were the known leaders of the time period uh, uh, where Christ was there on earth because they were still leading the people in the wrong direction. It was, you worship the laws, and by worshipping the laws, you were worshipping God. Well, that is not exactly the case. God wants you to obey certain rules and regulations for your own good. Uh, It's like any parent that is trying to train their children they're not telling them to go out and uh play on the freeway and don't worry about those cars going by uh you know that's a little foolish and yet uh in a sense that is what the leaders of the Jewish people were do telling these their uh people who could not most of them could not read and write and therefore had to depend on the leaders for instruction and direction and guidance. Unfortunately, they were leading the people in the wrong direction. Um. Another item that was a good thing that was done was the finalization of the structure of the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament was brought together in pretty much the form that we have today. Uh, And then, at another point in time, it was translated, the the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, I should say, were translated into Greek. For those people who left Israel and went to other parts of the country, particularly during and uh, immediately after the Babylonian exile ended, Many of them went to different parts of the country and never returned to Israel. They picked up the Greek language and never learned or totally forgot the Hebrew language or the Aramaic language. And after a while, they wanted the Hebrew scriptures to be translated into Greek in order for them to understand and use in their own services in Greek. And that eventually happened. There were 72 people were drawn, six from each of the remaining tribes of Jacob, and they came together to write the uh, Jewish uh, scriptures into Greek, to translate them into Greek. So that was a good thing, because then it permitted millions of, Jewish people all over the known world of that time uh, to read the scriptures. And of course, what did they read? Primarily the book of Deuteronomy, which was the laws. And they continued to worship the laws. Now, we should take note from that and not worship the laws, but use them as guides because God is more interested In what is in our mind, in our heart, rather than in our actions. Not that the actions don't count, but what's in our mind, in our heart, is far more important to him. And the other thing that is more important to him is that we worship him on an individual basis. Coming together periodically, Sundays and other times, as a community is also important. But worshiping him on an individual basis is the most important thing. Okay. <laughs> the other important item that came out of this time period, that is from the uh release of the exiles from Babylon in five thirty nine beginning in five thirty nine, there were three waves of releases over a period of uh, almost hundred years uh, three groups of people and not everybody, not all of the Jewish people returned um, to Israel but what happened when they did return well they weren't greeted with any great fanfare, they weren't greeted with any great welcome they were greeted with a lot of animosity partly because they felt that the people that were left behind that never went to Babylon uh, were forgotten and totally abandoned. And so you had a great deal of animosity. On the other hand, the people that uh, were born or, and raised in Babylon didn't know any of the uh, people in Israel, and you had that kind of problem. So they had to go back and start all over. There was no city in Jerusalem, there was no temple, there was no structure, but through the efforts of Nehemiah and Ezra, who became important people while still in Babylon, uh, they helped a great deal, and not only Cyrus the Great, but his successors, uh, Xerxes and the other guy was Certixerxes. Xerxes and Xerxes, I believe, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh also helped out. Amazing because this was never done before by any other nation that we know of, to help out uh people who were captives within their country and who were released under their good graces. Um uh, and helped out to return to their homeland. During this time period, we had another thing that happened, and that was they began to realize that they were never going to be uh, sovereign people. They were never going to be the rulers of their own country, and therefore they couldn't call Israel their promised land. I wish they'd remember that right now, but they don't. Uh, so at the time period, the idea of a new promised land began to take shape. And where was this new promised land? Well, eventually they put it together and they realized that the new promised land could only be a return to heaven and a reuniting with God himself, which of course we call heaven. They didn't in that day, and they still don't refer to uh, what we call heaven, the place where God resides. Uh, and then, from that, they developed some idea of well, who is going to lead us to this new promised land? And gradually, the idea of a new leader. Now, the word Messiah is something that developed very, very late in Jewish history shortly before the time of Jesus Christ so you will not see the word Messiah in the Old Testament what instead uh, in the very few of the very last prophets and a few of uh, the Psalms you might find the word or words the anointed one of God or something very close to that chosen one of God, but usually the anointed one of God, which when translated into Hebrew and then Aramaic and then Greek and then Latin, then English, comes out Messiah. The same way with the word Christ. You'll never find the word Christ in the Old Testament, but that is another interpretation uh, in Greek of the word uh, or the phrase the anointed one of God. So you have two words that dovetail into the same uh, end result or meaning. However, the Jewish people never accepted the idea of this anointed one being God himself or even a divine person or an angel, it was always a human person, more like King David. They looked to David as being the epitome of the ruler and the leader, because David was the one that united uh, Israel for the first time to the acceptance of all of the tribes and all of the Jewish people. And so they wanted somebody like David to rout the Greeks and then the Romans so that they could then be uh, a sovereign nation. And they are still waiting for somebody like that, unfortunately. So we have a number of things that came from this time period, but there's very little writing uh, that tells us uh, about everyday life of the Jewish people, from the time of the return from the Babylonian exile to the time of Jesus Christ. Um, It's unfortunate, but when the Bible was finally put together, that is, the Old Testament was finally put together uh, around the second century B.C., uh, shortly before the uh, War of the Maccabees, and then there were six or seven books written Uh, by the Greeks at that time which were added and then that became a bone of contention you might say because the Greek version of the Old Testament included these six or seven books when I say six or seven it's because Maccabees in some of those older or earlier translations was only one book and of course now it has been divided into two books uh, because uh, when it was actually written and joined it had to be put on two different scrolls because of the length and therefore it became two books. So uh, it's really seven books were added uh, to the Jewish scriptures to give them a total of 46 books. 39 in the Old Hebrew tradition uh, and 46 in the Greek or Septuagint tradition. Okay. The New Testament has 26 or 27 books in it, uh, and that's the same in all uh, translations and versions. Sometimes there's a little bit of uh, adjustments or changes in the Old Testament in some of the chapters and verses, and in the numbering of psalms. But otherwise, um, most of them are the same. So you had a number of good things happen uh, during the time period of after the exile to the time of Christ, but a number of negative things as well. Again, the high priest became the ruling person And the idea of worshipping rules and regulations increased and multiplied, you might say. The book of the Talmud, uh, the verbal rendition of that, this is just a history of the Talmud. It is not a copy of the Talmud, because that would be that big. Uh, I don't know how many, many uh, volumes it takes to complete it, but this is an interesting history of the Talmud, how it began and uh, eventually put together and then put into a write, into writing beginning in around the 4th century A.D. And it wasn't until the 12th century under Moses Maimonides never pronounced that correctly, but uh, that really brought it to light. And the Jewish people really look to the Talmud more so than they do the Hebrew scriptures, unfortunately. So we have a a number of things that uh, were good and a number of things that were wrong. The whole idea of worshipping laws is still wrong because you're not really worshipping God of those laws or for the purpose of those laws. You may think so, but unfortunately it isn't. And that's true with our faith today. We have to be very, very careful that we are not worshipping just laws or putting going through the motions of being Catholic uh, or Christian, simply by fulfilling certain laws. Because that's of no value. What we want to do is really worship God. If you look on the reverse side of your program today, I. any other questions right now? Before I go on. And, Justin?
1: Uh, briefly, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Talmud? I'm not familiar with.
0: The Talmud is sort of a combination of our catechism and commentary. The Jewish laws, number 613, it started with the Ten Commandments and it grew, it grows like topsy, as you might have heard in the past. And that came about because Moses was inspired by God to lead the people through the desert for 40 years, or approximately 40 years. All right, There had to be rules and regulations set up simply for hygiene uh, and living purposes. Those were not intended to be equal to the Ten Commandments. But gradually, in the eyes of the Jewish people, they did. They took on a religious significance. And from there on, many laws that were set up by the Jewish hierarchy or high priest or whatever were not always intended to be uh, equal to the Ten Commandments and part of their uh, Worship service, but gradually over a period of time, they did. Let me give you a little example. How many of you, when we say the Our Father at daily Mass or Sunday Mass, hold hands or lift up your hands such as this? Okay, that has never been a church rule. It came out of practice from the Charismatic Renewal, Back in uh, the mid-1960s. But gradually it came into worship service and now it's like an automatic thing. But that was never intended to be part of our church tradition or customs or culture. But those things, you know, come along and it's human nature, nature to just absorb it and have it become part of your everyday life and that's what the Jewish people did. The only thing is they will go too far in many cases and <clears throat> make these things laws that if they are not observed then you're uh, you're really committing a great sin and look at how many times Jesus, was criticized, particularly by the Pharisees, for worshiping on a Sunday. And finally he said, you know, like in exasperation, mankind was made not for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. As a day of rest and recollection and worship in a sense so, the whole idea of Sunday, which, as I told you, I believe, last week, was changed from the Friday evening to Saturday evening of the Jewish uh, faith to uh, Saturday evening to Sunday evening in the Christian faith by the Emperor Constantine. Okay. <clears throat> it was King David who made Jerusalem the center of Judaism. And why? Because by having a center, a focal point, from which all rules and regulations were disseminated out, gave some structure and authority to the Jewish faith, which it did not have before that. The same idea was transferred into Christianity with the center, the focus of our faith being from Rome. Because Rome was where Paul and Peter both were martyred. It is where the emperor Constantine freed the people, all people, to worship uh, however and wherever and whatever they wanted to. Uh, and built the first Catholic or uh, Christian uh, Basilica in Rome. So Rome became the focal point to give it some structure, some authority, some recognition, and is still that way. Rome is not God in any shape or form, and doesn't tend to be. But nevertheless, we recognize the church as being the extension of God. And that is where the seat of authority is. Without that, we would be like many unfortunate Protestant churches today who have no central authority and really have no central theology and therefore break up and increase and multiply through dissension more than cohesion. So... Again, what we really have today is a beautiful faith that comes from Jesus Christ himself. We can say that our church was not uh, started by Calvin or Martin Luther or uh, King Henry the Eighth. Our church was begun and continued to be held together by Jesus Christ alone. No one else. The rulers of the church ascending from the Pope on down are not Christ. They are not divine. They are human beings and they have faults and failures which we have recognized throughout our time period but nevertheless the church will exist even uh Long after those people are gone. One of the things I want to do is to talk about the, you know, all the good things of life. Alright. Let's, let's take this diagram. As I said in the very first meeting, God does nothing that is outside of His plan of salvation. Everything that God did, will do, do, did, does, or will do, is in line with this plan. The whole idea of a plan of salvation is that after mankind was created, Along with the earth and the moon and all of that which is necessary to support mankind, God knew that mankind would sin. And therefore, because the idea of being a divine God has certain laws that are embedded in that nature of divinity. Mankind, who was not divine, who was not perfect, had to have some way to reconcile the difference between his immort- his mortality, his lack of divinity, and being with the divine God. So that when mankind returned, there had to be some way to cleanse mankind of any sin. And so, this whole idea that once mankind sinned, that set up a breach or a void between the divine God and man. That could not be crossed. The whole idea of the story of you know, the rich man who died and went to hell uh, because he did not have any sympathy or take care of the beggar who lived outside his door who died also and went to heaven. And the story, as you all know, ends by God saying, even if somebody rose from the dead and was not listened to, it could not help the guy that was in hell get out of hell and eventually go to heaven. Uh, I would recommend that you reach that or research that little parable in the Gospels and read it occasionally because it, it's frightening in one way, but it has a great deal of meaning. Anyways. The whole idea of this plan of salvation is to help mankind eventually get back into uh, the good graces of God and be with God at the end of our individual life and at the end of all life and all time. That required a unique and special sacrifice. Or an offering. And because mankind had nothing that was perfect, since we were imperfect to begin with, God had to give mankind something that was perfect. And the only thing that is perfect is God himself. So God had to give part of himself to mankind in order to sacrifice, have mankind sacrifice that part of him to open the door to allow mankind to come back Mm -hmm. and so we have this little diagram to show the progress within history of how this all came about the first part here is what we would call the time and the role of the father who created all things and set up this divine covenant with Abraham and renewed it with Moses and down through the ages. It set up the beginning of a family, Abraham's family, and the nation that became the Jewish nation who was to be the voice of God, who would go out and help bring in all of the other nations into the fold. Unfortunately, because of free will, the Jewish people refused to do that. They did not do that. They took this whole idea of being the promised or these chosen people Uh, too personally, too literally, reflecting on themselves, that they were so chosen by God that they felt that they were to be separated by God. And God, over and over, through many of the prophets and the other prominent priests and teachers of the Old Testament time period, tried to tell them that this is not what God wanted. If you go to Isaiah chapter 49... It's very clear in there that they were intended to be a light to the other nations, a community that was a loving uh, and wanting to help each other and help all of their neighbors, but they made them exo- themselves an exclusive community rather than uh, an inclusive community. But many good things did happen, as we've said before. uh, The scriptures, for one thing, which gave us, because we as Christians use more of the Jewish scriptures than the Jewish people do, particularly the Psalms and the prophets, the warnings and the teachings of the prophets. Uh, One of the greatest psalms is Psalm 22. You've all heard uh, the words that Jesus utters in the seven last words when he is on the cross. And one of those seven last words or groups of words uh, are, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me, as it says in some translations? Those are the beginning words of Psalm 22. Jesus, in his preaching and teaching while he was here on earth, often used the Psalms as a way of introduction into a teaching. And uh, another one was when uh, Philip and Nathaniel asked God, or asked Christ, uh, where he is staying? Where, where you, where do you live? And Jesus replies, the foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, he's quoting right out of Psalm 84, which opens that same way. And he's saying that the birds and the animals roam freely uh, and sleep wherever they wish, but the Son of Man, meaning Jesus Himself, has no permanent home. He is with, um, He is among everyone else. Wherever He is, that is where God is. All right. So, the Psalms are extremely important, and we use them more than the Jewish people do. So if you're lacking in prayer, uh, understanding uh, some of the prayers that you're given, turn to the psalms. In fact, I rec- recommend that you take one psalm per day, and you'll cover that. You know, there's 150 psalms, some of them, like Psalm 119, which is the longest one, you might want to break up into uh, two or three days. Take one each day and use it as the basis for your prayer time so that you can meditate on what it is. But if you don't understand it, that's okay. Ask God to help you to understand it. Ask God to tell you what the meaning is. It may not have any meaning directly for you, but it has a meaning for someone. So there's never a waste. Many good things came out of that. But the epitome of God's plan of salvation was during the time of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he had to give something to mankind that would be worthy of him because of his divinity that mankind could sacrifice and return to him as a way of closing up that breach that was created by mankind's sin in the first place. And therefore, Jesus Christ was God himself giving himself to mankind and taking on the role of a human being. And so he became a human in the full sense that we are, starting right from the same way that we come From our parents. And he had to grow up. Learning all of the rules and regulations. Of life. In that culture. He did not know he was. God. Because he set that aside. As. Paul tells us in Philippians. Chapter 2. Verses 6 to 11. He set aside his divinity and became a man just like the rest of us. But he was willing to die for us and God exalted him in such a way that he is now called Lord. All right. So, God's plan of salvation continues this way. But, what is happening here? The Jewish people are following this word for word up to this point. But remember, they were looking for a Messiah who was like King David. And when Jesus comes along, Jesus doesn't look like King David. He had no intentions. Jesus looked like you and me. I hope more like you than me. Um... he looked like anyone else he was not a knight on a white horse you know with shining armor and so forth he did not want to get rid of the Romans he did not make any effort towards that he did not do all of the things that the Jewish people expected the Messiah to do and therefore they ignored him they ignored him to the point of actually putting him to death because they thought he was speaking against their culture, their way of thinking, just as they put to death all of the prophets. Because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. And they didn't like what Christ had to say. So little by little, although they were following this part they're starting to drift off they're drifting off of God's plan of salvation if you go to Psalm 81 Psalm 81 will tell you exactly that this is what's happening I left them through their own designs he's not wiping them out He's leaving them do what they want, and they're continuing on, but they are continuing off of this path of salvation. And so, this is why Christianity and Judaism could never blend together. We could never be one organization. Or one faith. Because at this point in time they have left God behind to follow their own design. And now they are drifting off on their own. Does that make sense? Can you can you really see that? I know that over there in the corner it's going to be difficult for you but I hope that you're able to, to see this. Uh, people over here should be able to, but if I turn it a little bit this way, uh, it would be easier for you to see. The Jewish people have followed this to the letter, but began to drift off here, and are now headed sort of out to space, because the only way that they are going to recognize salvation is if they accept the teachings of Christ and return. We ourselves are in danger of doing the same thing because if we go off And try to do things on our own. Or do not pay attention. To the guidelines. That the Catholic Church has set up. We ourselves. Can find ourselves. Drifting off. And doing our own thing. The same way. As the Jewish people have. It is important. That we realign. Our life. With the teachings of Christ. And taking the guidance of the Holy Spirit and that is the role of the Holy Spirit to take the benefit of what the Father and the Son has given us and use the benefits particularly the passion, death and resurrection of the Son to help us come back so that we can be reunited with the Father If that make sense? That is something that is a very simple thing in a way, and yet not probably easy for a lot of people to do. But again, we cannot live our life solely by ourselves, within ourselves. We need the help of Christ we need the help of the Holy Spirit, and we need the help through the church. And we want to, or we are told, that we have to share what we are given from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to with other people. Now, how do we do that? Well, a lot of people are not accustomed uh, and feel very reluctant to go out and share their faith with anyone else. We're not being asked to go up and parade up and down you know Douglas Boulevard or Pleasant Grove Boulevard and uh, shout out things uh, that reflect our faith. We are to live it in a quiet way, on an everyday basis, within the circumstances that we currently have. But we should not ignore an opportunity when an opportunity arises to talk about our faith. Right now, let me give you a little example. And I'm not using myself as any holier-than-thou person. But I live in a community of retired people who share meals together. And I, along with Alice uh, and a number of others, when we sit down to begin meal, we bless ourselves and bow our head and say silently a prayer. And we have never, to my knowledge, have you Alice ever been uh, called upon to say that that was well. Uh, well, no. no. everybody is respectful of what we do, and I think silently there's probably a lot of people that admire our faith and wanting to do that in public. Now, we don't make a big display of it. But that is just a very simple one way of sharing your faith. Can I share a a experience I had as
1: far as this goes? uh, When I was 20, I went into the Army as a physical therapist, and I took a Bible with me, and I had all the documents and everything, but I, I said, I started reading the Bible and I said to myself, this makes no sense to me at all. I started at the beginning, which I don't recommend, and so worked through. And it had made no sense to me. A few years later, I, I asked the Holy Spirit, because that's, that's the third part here, the Holy Spirit to come into my life. And I received the Holy Spirit in my baptism and confirmation. And a lot of Catholics have, too but they forget the Holy Spirit. And I asked the Holy Spirit to help me understand scripture. I, 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 every time I pray, I read scripture. I, it came to, to me like light in the dark. It, every statement made something special to me. And I understood, I received such understanding that I never had before. And I was in that position where I read scripture, it meant nothing. I mean, it would, some of it would mean, but as far as the Old Testament and reading through, made no sense. But I asked that Holy Spirit, and I experienced the Holy Spirit revealing the knowledge of the Holy Spirit and giving me guidance and word through the scriptures that I had never had before. And so I can only say that the Holy Spirit is so important in all our lives. And to live daily by the Holy Spirit in conversation with the Holy Spirit of what to do in your lives will make a whole difference in your life, and you'll experience Jesus in your life in such a powerful way that that you know you'll know it's like night and day and the Holy Spirit working in you, and that is that's why He gave the Holy Spirit to us to give up, give us wisdom and counsel
0: and guidance. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, extremely important, and you heard it from a very good authority. Uh, Carmella for those of you who don't know is the wife of Carl Kuby, the one of the deacons here, the oldest of the deacons, oldest in seniority, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yes. Well, there like I said, there are six or seven books in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament which Catholic Church did not put them in there, nor did they take them out. Okay? Uh, Those were put in at the time that the Jewish people translated their scriptures into Greek. Now, when Martin Luther in the 16th century AD broke away from the Catholic Church, he, in his versions of the Bible, went back and used the Hebrew version, which does not have those six or seven books in it. And that is the only difference between what we would call a Protestant version of the Bible and a Catholic version. Those books were omitted by Martin Luther and his people, not by the Catholic Church. Nor did we add them. My granddaughter, who was educated in a a non-Catholic Christian school, asked me one day, why did the Catholic Church add six or seven books to the Bible? And I said, we didn't. And I went through the exercise that I just told you. And she goes, oh, yeah. Uh, She didn't know what to make of it. But uh, I told her to research. You know, the difference between the Greek version, the Septuagint version, which most Christian denominations use, and the Hebrew version. Other than that, the Bibles are the same. Now, the Psalms, there's a little bit of difference in numbering, depending on which version you use, but they all come out the same. There's still 150 Psalms. In all books of all Bibles. Now you do have a number of other things. That may be in some Protestant Bibles. Called Apocrypha. And even in most of the. Protestant versions of the Bible. They are adding those seven. But they are in a separate group called Apocrypha. Or meaning afterthought. And they will list those. Along with uh, some other writings that we do not, uh, the Catholic version of our Bible was set up by Saint Jerome in the fourth, well, no, in the fifth century, early part of the fifth century A.D., and he had to take all of the writings his his um, commission, you might say, or his demand by Pope Damasus was to take all of the writings up to that time and develop a companion uh, book uh, equal to the Greek or the Jewish uh, Hebrew, Jewish uh, writings, or the, what we call the Old Testament. And so one of the criteria or rules he set up for himself was that it only would contain those books that came directly from Christ uh, through the apostles uh, for, in the first century. And so all of the books of the New Testament were written by people such as the apostles or Paul or Timothy or Titus uh, or John or whatever uh, in the first century A.D. Now that doesn't mean that there weren't good books written after that but they are just not contained in our bible we have had to make some limits somewhere so that's why uh, how we got to 27 books in the new testament uh, 49 books in the old testament all right yes but you got to be careful don't don't use the word wipe out to mean slaughter or anything they were taken off to assyria never to be seen or heard from again. All right? And there was only the two in the southern kingdom, Judah and Dan, that were left. And those were uh, taken off to Babylon. And so the whole idea of the tribal structure was destroyed with the Babylonian exile. And so they all disappeared. Uh, along with the idea of the Jewish monarchy, that disappeared as well. The temple disappeared, but it was rebuilt. Now there's an important lesson right there. The temple was rebuilt not to the same elegance that it was before Babylon, but at least it was serviceable. It was then rebuilt in the early part of the first century B.C. by uh, Herod the Great. That's why he was called the Great, because he built this beautiful temple, which is known as the Second Temple. Now, this temple, because the Jewish people did not accept Christ, rejected him, and Crucified him. This temple was also destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. It was a sign that God's covenant with the Jewish people, the old covenant, the first covenant that was made way back with, between God and Abraham in the beginning, was now withdrawn because not only did they refuse during this whole 2,000 years between the time of Abraham and Christ, refuse to stay on this path here. They went off time and time and time again. And Jesus or God got keep bringing them back through various priests and prophets and other leaders constantly bringing them back. But at the time of Christ, when the leaders should have known from the writings of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, that this man was fulfilling the description and the teachings of the Anointed One of God, they should have known, and they should have gone back. But they ignored it because they were trying to protect their prominence, their their pride, their job, etc., etc. And they totally ignored ignored it as the prophets were ignored in the past. And they crucified Christ thinking that was a way to get rid of him. Because they didn't believe, not only did they not believe he was uh, the Messiah as he told them uh, and as others had tried to tell them uh, well uh, you know they, cru- they crucified him as the prophets were crucified were crucified etc etc and therefore God withdrew the uh, covenant and it was signified by the destruction of the temple which was their uh, their idea that God was among them and favored them. But he was only in the temple. What happened outside was none of his business. Uh, and God said, no more of that. And the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. So there's kind of a lesson in there. He had the temple destroyed back in the 6th century by the Babylonians but it was rebuilt through his help and inspiration of Cyrus the Great and the priest Nehemiah. Ezra came uh, at a slightly different time period and Ezra was the one that we believe was responsible for bringing the Bible together as we have it today. That is the Old Testament. Uh, But the temple was never that is the temple that Herod built uh, was destroyed never to be rebuilt as a sign that God was finishing bringing the Jewish people along in a very special way as the chosen people. Let's uh, end our session here because I, um, first of all I'm out of wind. Uh, but this is so important. Please, don't catch yourself going off the beaten path. It is so important that you remain on this path using, as Carnella told us, using the efforts of the Holy Spirit. That's his job, is to help you to understand Scripture, help you to understand where you might be going wrong, or, and conversely, where you are going right. The thing is, obedience to the will of God is important for each one of you. And I challenge you to spend a few minutes each day praying to the Holy Spirit for guidance and understanding what your role is in this overall plan, because each one of us has a small part to play in this role of God's plan of salvation. It may be a very small part. It may change from time to time. But nevertheless, we each have something to contribute, and that is what God is interested in. Justin?
1: about
0: The book of Revelation. (laughs) You know, in some ways I'd like to, but I've always said I'll never do it again. (laughs) It is a very, very difficult book. And unless you have a very good understanding of the Old Testament, because there is a number of passages in it that are very akin to uh, the prophet Ezekiel to some uh, it is very much like the book of Daniel uh, but it is apocalyptic language that is again uh, sort of criticizing the treatment that the Romans were giving the Christians in the latter part of the first century but it was disguised in such a way that it would pass censorship uh, and therefore, the tree. Let me give you a little example. It's talking about, and you probably all heard of this and wondered what the heck does it mean about the red dragon with ten heads and, and ten horns. Well, the red, the word red in Hebrew comes out Herod, and the ten dragons are not not ten dragons, seven dragons, seven dragons with ten heads. And that is because they represent the seven parrots of that time period. Um, There are so many other things in there. But from chapter 19 19 on, it is pretty much a foretaste or uh, an impression, or John, the writer's uh, impression of what heaven would be like. And it begins with the idea of Mary being the modern Ark of the Covenant. Meaning Mary carrying God himself. Remember the Ark of the Covenant. Contained the manna and the Ten Commandments and the staff. All those things that were directly connected with God himself. Well, Mary is often referred to as the Ark of the Covenant because she carried God himself for nine months. Yeah. Uh, and you often will see Mary depicted as standing on the moon with 12 stars over her head. That comes right out of the book of Revelation, chapter 20 and 21. All right. So there's a great deal of beauty in that book, but believe me, it's not easy to understand. Yeah. Oh, the Romans. The Romans at that time, yes. Anything that was printed had to be censored by the Romans uh, before it could be released. And you have the same thing back in the second century BC and that's how the book of Daniel was written. It was a criticism of the Greek government, the Greek Seleucid government uh, of that time period. So it was written as if it was sort of a fantasy put back in the Babylonian time period. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't know the background, uh, it's very difficult. Yeah. But with the background, it sort of opens up, as Carmela said, and the help of the Holy Spirit, it opens up a lot of new doors. So, with that, let us end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the many graces and blessings that you have given us over the past ten weeks. Help us, then, to open our minds and our hearts and help us to pray. Help us to learn how to pray. To be with you in prayer. To understand your role for us. Give us the strength and the grace to open our minds and our hearts to you on a daily basis. Help us to be obedient to what you ask of us and to fulfill it with joy, with devotion, with sincerity and above all humility. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.